It is said by historians of art and literature that great artists sometimes depict their enemies in their works. Michelangelo, in his famous fresco of the Final Judgment on the wall of the Sistine Chapel in Rome, depicts a certain church leader as being among the condemned. Was the artist saying that this person would really go to hell at his death? No, it was just his way of expressing dislike for a particular cardinal or pope with whom he had a disagreement. We see something similar happening in Matthew chapters 21 and 22. By the time Matthew writes around the year 85, the events he is describing are some 50 to 55 years in the past. Yet one group that was prominent in the gospel story, the Pharisees, seems still to have an influence, a negative one, on the community for whom Matthew writes. Through his portrayal of this group in the scenes of conflict with Jesus, Matthew is commenting also on contemporary enemies of his community of Jewish Christians. Matthew wants to encourage his community with the good news that in the Messiah, all enemies are overcome and reversals of fortune are possible. Our present lesson begins in chapter 20 with a parable of unexpected reversal. All of Jesus' parables in some way take us by surprise, especially this one. It expands on the notion of reward that concluded lesson six. As the parable of the workers in the vineyard shows, people who are willing to show the least bit of cooperation with God will sometimes receive more than they expect. Read from an American work ethic perspective of an honest day's pay for an honest day's work, this parable does not sit well with us. How can it be fair for those who work 12 hours, most of it in the heat, to be paid no more than those who worked only one hour in the cool of the day? Parables are meant to turn our heads and make us ask questions. Is this one really about fairness as we usually perceive it? about receiving what we earn? Jesus introduces the parable saying that the last will be first. This theme is repeated when the foreman is instructed to pay the laborers beginning with the last and ending with the first. In the following verses, we, along with the all-day workers, are surprised to hear that everyone is being paid the same wage, that the latter group has been made equal to the first group. Almost forgotten in the surprise is that no one has been cheated. The first group hired agreed to work for the usual daily wage of one denarius, and that is what they received. Those who worked fewer hours probably did not expect to receive as much as they did, but would have been pleasantly surprised. Remember, they were not lazy. They presented themselves for labor but were not hired until later. The point of the parable comes when the owner asks a complainer, Are you envious because I am generous? It is the owner's generosity, not the worker's worthiness, that is the lesson of this parable. By extension, we are to see the generous grace of God surprising those who are open to Him, who present themselves for work, so to speak, even if it is late in the day. In the kingdom of heaven, things are turned upside down and expected orders are reversed. Even those who turn to God late in the day, the tax collectors, the sinners, and breakers of the law, will be placed on a footing equal to those who have been believers from the beginning. In a seemingly abrupt change of subject, Matthew reminds his readers in verse 17 that Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem. At this point, Jesus tells his disciples for the third time about his approaching suffering. This time, rather than simply saying he will be killed, Jesus details that he will be handed over to the Gentiles by the chief priests and the scribes to be mocked and scourged and crucified. 
All three predictions specify that he will be raised on the third day. It is the statement about resurrection that reminds us that Jesus too will experience a reversal of fortune twice. He will lose his life through condemnation and crucifixion, but will be raised after his death. The use of the passive voice, be raised, indicates that God is the acting agent in the resurrection. The same God who is generous to those who are faithful will also raise to life the beloved Son who would obediently accept the cup of suffering and death. Though Jesus had earlier told his disciples in 1624, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, it now appears in chapter 20 that his words have been forgotten by James and John. They want seats of honor next to Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. In Mark's version of the same scene, James and John make the request themselves. Matthew, however, hoping to preserve the image of these two men as close associates of Jesus, has their mother do the asking. Jesus sees through the cover and responds directly to the two brothers. You do not know what you're asking. Even though they say they can drink the cup of suffering with Jesus, we get the feeling their words are hollow. Sure enough, in chapter 26, we will witness their falling asleep while Jesus faces the terrible reality of that cup and then see them fleeing the scene at Jesus' arrest. Wanting places of honor next to Jesus indicates the disciples misunderstand his entire mission. Ironically, the only places next to Jesus occur at the crucifixion. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus' kingdom is about service, not power. The blindness implicit in John and James becomes explicit in verses 29 to 34. Matthew recounts the restoration of two blind men sitting on the outskirts of Jericho. We might say that their physical blindness is a metaphor for the lack of vision in the apostles and in any disciple who does not understand the mission of Jesus. As Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem in chapter 21, Matthew quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah in verse 5. Say to daughter Zion, Behold, your king comes to you, meek and riding on an ass, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This quotation deserves a couple of comments. Matthew omits from the Zechariah quote the words, Triumphant and victorious is he, as if to downplay the Messiah's power. Instead, he emphasizes the humility of Jesus by retaining the words meek and riding on an ass and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Therefore, we actually see Jesus living out his lesson to James, John, and the others. So he enters Jerusalem without taking advantage of the moment and of its opportunity for seizing control of the people's political desires. He enters Jerusalem for the sole purpose of doing God's will and saving his people from their sins. The other comment has to do with the difficult notion of Jesus riding two beasts at once. Matthew says in verse 7, They brought the ass and the colt and laid their cloaks over them, and he sat upon them. It appears that Matthew has misread the concept of parallelism in Hebrew poetry, misunderstanding that ass and colt are really two ways of describing the same animal. Though the physical concept is awkward, Matthew wants to portray Jesus as the literal fulfillment of prophecy. Though Jesus enters the city on a humble beast of burden, he soon dismounts and enters the temple area where his meekness turns to indignation. 
Again, Matthew reveals a scriptural background to Jesus cleansing the temple area. He quotes a combination of prophecies from Isaiah 56. My house shall be a house of prayer, and Jeremiah 7, but you are making it a den of thieves. What exactly were the buyers and sellers doing anyway? Their transactions were not taking place in the inner precincts of the temple, but in the outermost court of the Gentiles. Many worshipers came from all parts of the Roman Empire and needed to change their various currencies into coinage with no secular image. This transaction was done primarily out of respect for the God of Israel, of whom there were no graven images. Temple coinage would be used to pay the temple tax and to purchase animals for sacrifice. The casualness, the taking for granted of holy space, the unthinking familiarity of daily business no doubt observed many times by Jesus on this day led him into a strong symbolic action. For him, the inappropriate mixture of business and worship were a metaphor for the spiritual state of the people at that time. His surprising prophetic action would hopefully startle worshipers into examining their spiritual motives. In the next verses, we are introduced, as if by purposeful contrast, to some true worshipers in the temple area, the blind and the lame and the children. The chief priests and the scribes are the antithesis of the people on the fringe of society who are drawn to Jesus. Instead, they represent the very aspects of temple worship that Jesus rejected, legalism and outer show of piety. Even the cursing of the fig tree on the following morning is connected to the temple. Like a fruitless though leafy fig tree, the temple, the most beautiful building in Jerusalem, is barren of true worship and will be destroyed. Throughout the scriptures of Jesus' time, Israel is often compared to a vine or a fig tree. Does this passage infer that he is cursing the entire people of Israel? No, the target of both Jesus and Matthew is the irresponsible leadership of chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees. In chapter 23, they will receive Jesus' harshest criticism because their hearts are hardened. On the other hand, he looks on the crowds, the common people, with pity teaches them, and even feeds them. Jesus' issue is with the leaders and the teachers of the people, not the people themselves. A further contrast is drawn between the empty authority of the Jerusalem leaders and the divine authority of Jesus. To illustrate his authority, Jesus tells three parables. The first one in 21, 28 to 32, about two sons is unique to Matthew's gospel. Its point is that hearts can change. The first son, representative of tax collectors and prostitutes, at first refuses to obey the father, but later goes to the vineyard. The second son, representative of the leaders and the chief priests, says he will work in the vineyard, but then does not. Jesus makes the point that the most egregious sinners in society did repent and the leaders did not. In the parable of the tenants in verses 33 and following, Jesus keeps his aim on the chief priests and the elders. The elements of the story are allegorical. So here the landowner is God, the vineyard is Israel, the tenants are the chief priests and elders, the servants are the prophets, and the landowner's son is Jesus. In keeping with the allegorical interpretation, we could say that vintage time indicates the end of the world or judgment time. The parable of the tenants is a strong statement of judgment where the leaders condemn themselves in verse 41. 
they answer Jesus' rhetorical question directly. The owner will put those wretched men to a wretched death and lease his vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the proper times. The chief priests and the elders are the wretched men, and though God will not put them to death, Jesus says to them, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. Membership in the kingdom must produce fruit, that is, faith and the love of God and neighbor. The final parable of judgment is that of the wedding feast. Jesus compares life in the kingdom to the situation of a ruler who invites guests, presumably well-known, to a banquet for his son's wedding. The invited guests twice refuse to come without explanation. They even mistreat and kill the servants who bring the invitations. A new set of invitations is issued, this time to anyone who will come, the bad and good alike. Finally, the banquet hall is filled. As the king greets his guests, he notices that one is not properly robed. When the guest has no explanation, he is thrown out of the hall bound hand and foot. The invitation depends on God. Entry depends upon our acceptance of the invitation, but remaining depends upon our participation once we enter life in the kingdom, which is among us in the present moment. In the next scene, the Pharisees send a delegation of their own disciples to trap Jesus with the question of paying taxes to the Roman emperor. They ask, is it lawful to pay the census tax to Caesar or not? He is intended to have no acceptable answer. If Jesus says it is lawful to pay taxes to a foreign pagan entity, he will offend his own people and risk losing popular support. If he says it is not lawful, he will offend the Roman authorities and risk arrest. Either way, the Pharisees will win. But they should know better. Jesus sees through their trick, calls them hypocrites, and asks to see a census coin, that is, a denarius. At that time, a denarius would have borne the image of Tiberius Caesar, emperor between A.D. 14 and 37. In so many words, Jesus answers their question by saying, since the coin bears Caesar's image, it is his. Give it back to him. But while you're at it, give to God what belongs to God, that is, what doesn't belong to God. Jesus answers an unanswerable question within an arguable statement, defeating his critics for the time being. Just when it seems that Jesus has silenced his opponents, a new set of challenges appears from the Sadducees. Now this Jewish sect was known as the scriptural fundamentalists of their day, adhering only to the five books of Moses, what we call the Pentateuch. They could find no evidence of resurrection in these books, and so they pose a question, which in turn questions Jesus' teaching about the resurrection. Rather than respond to the hypothetical situation of a woman married to a sequence of brothers who died before her, Jesus attacks the assumptions made by the Sadducees imposing their hypothetical problem. You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Jesus cites Exodus 3.6 where God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He then argues that since the living God would not make personal association with the dead, then the patriarchs must be living in the resurrection. In this episode, Jesus makes his case by using the scriptures honored by the Sadducees themselves. Matthew uses the episode to show that the Messiah understands and interprets scripture to those who misconstrue its meaning. Now a scribe approaches. 
The Law of Moses contains 613 laws, 248 of them designated as positive, you shall, and 365 as negative, you shall not. With so many laws, all of them important to the Jews, teachers were often asked for a summary of the law. Since the lawyer or the scribe in chapter 22 verses 34 to 40 is trying to test Jesus, he uses the term teacher insincerely. But Jesus does teach and gives a perfect summary of the law in an easy to remember format. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he continues, this is the greatest and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. By combining these two points of the law, one from Deuteronomy and the other from Leviticus, he gives a new teaching. Jesus even puts the love of neighbor on the same level as the love of God by saying, the second is like it. Having met challenges from chief priests, elders, Sadducees, and Pharisees, Jesus himself asks a question of the Pharisees. He inquires about the proper interpretation of the first verse of Psalm 110, which reads, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. Further, he asks in verse 42, what is your opinion about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The Pharisees give the accepted answer, the Messiah is David's son. Their answer allows Jesus to demonstrate once again his understanding of scripture and his divine origin. Though Matthew early on showed us that the Messiah is the son of David by Joseph's legal adoption, we are reminded at the end of chapter 22 of his true origin. Later in chapter 27, the Roman centurion who witnesses Jesus' death will identify plainly the one who came to save his people from their sins. Mm -hmm.